0: Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Alright guys, hey, welcome to Refuge Podcast. Um, In light of everything that's been going on, we want to just tell you guys that we love you guys. Um, If you haven't noticed already or seen any of our Instagram updates. Um, we're currently postponing meetings uh, for the time being, but we miss you guys so much. Can't wait to be back with you guys, um, but until we're able to meet back together, uh, you can find our teachings here on the podcast, and we're going to be uploading them every week. And yeah, so uh, my name's Zach. Um, And I'm going to be, Andrew, Pastor Andrew asked if I would teach for this first one too on. So I'm going to be teaching through John chapter 18. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there and John chapter 18, we'll do the whole chapter and um, let's start off with prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God who is in control of all things. Father, that nothing that happens in this world, whether it's chaotic or or anything like that, Lord. Nothing is beyond you or above you, Father. You are sovereign through it all, and so we just choose to trust you, Father, in this moment. We pray you'd bring peace, Lord, to our hearts, Um, even as we read your word, Lord, um, that you would bring us peace, God. And so we love you so much. Pray that your spirit would be here with us as we learn from your word. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh you gotta forgive me. This is a little awkward. I'm kind of standing in a room by myself. We're used to being with people, and there's nobody here. And it's a little weird, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> but <laughs> if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to John chapter 18 with me? And in here, I wanted to start off with a story. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the olympian michael phelps but he's perhaps one of the greatest swimmers of all time he's known for his ability to close a race and in my opinion the greatest example of this was the hundred meter butterfly race that michael phelps swam during the 2008 beijing olympics at the start of this race it was so amazing the start of this race the Serbian star Milorad Kavic, it's hard to pronounce his name, <laughs> he took a favorable lead. So at the start of this race, he, the Serbian star took a favorable lead. And as they turned the last lap, remarkably Phelps gained. And soon the two men were swimming neck and neck for first place for gold. Approaching the finish line, both of these men needed a partial stroke to reach the wall. Kavich chose to glide, but Michael Phelps chose to take an extra short stroke and drove hard into the wall. His lunge caused him to surge ahead of Kavich, beating him by one one hundredth of a second. That's point zero one of a second. So amazing. Michael Phelps' narrow victory was not just an example of how great of an athlete he was, but I think it shows to us something deeper than that. I think this victory actually shows to us his extraordinary determination. When Michael Phelps, when he needed it the most, he was able to dig down deep inside and find a little something extra to finish hard, strong, and well. And here in John chapter 18, I think that we see even more so of a determination in Jesus. Jesus here, we could call him the greatest finisher of all time because for three and a half years, he ran his race faithfully, obeying the father. But here in the last hours, when all of the forces of hell were coming against him to stop Jesus, Jesus found the extra push He drove hard to the end and he left nothing undone. Actually, in John 17, verse four, Jesus prayed to the father and he said this. He said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I mean, even while Jesus hung upon the cross, his words echoed across the ages, it is finished. And this should encourage us. Jesus being the greatest finisher of all time, this should encourage us. Why? Because Jesus finishes what he starts. And that includes his work in our lives. You know, put so beautifully, in Philippians, Paul wrote this, quote, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it. I want you to remember that today, as we start our Bible study today, Jesus is going to finish what he started in you. He's not sidelined because of the things that are happening maybe in your life, or he's not benching you because of what mistakes might have happened or anything like that. Jesus finishes what he starts. He has a perfect follow through. And even as John so well stated back in chapter 13, verse one, it says that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Know that today Jesus loves you to the end. And so as we look into our study, we start off here in the first couple of verses. We have to remember something as we start off in this study. Something a little bit about the geography of Jerusalem. Remember Jesus, what we had learned in our past study, Jesus had just Um, finished praying out loud to the Father for his disciples um, in that upper room where he shared the Passover meal with them and he washed their feet. And as they were going from this place, they were walking um, from that place in Jerusalem. And one thing that's interesting to notice about the geography of Jerusalem is that Jerusalem, this city, is actually made up of five hills. Five hills, okay? Okay. To the north, there was this mountain, this hill called Mount Scopus, and to the east was the Mount of Olives. To the south was Mount Ophel, and to the west was Mount Zion. And in the center, Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, where the city was founded on. And so, with these mountains, these three hills there were, or sorry, these five hills, there are actually three valleys that. We're between these mountains, and our chapter begins in one of these valleys, the valley between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, and this valley is known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or as we see here in our text in the first verse, the Kidron Valley. Read with me in verse 1 of chapter 18 in John. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, after he had prayed, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Jesus has now led his disciples out of the upper room and across this valley. You know, this valley, this brook, I really think it has great significance in this part of the story. It's not the first time that we read about the brook of Kidron. Sorry, um, when we first, One of the times when we read of it, it's, it's actually interesting. King David, after evacuating his city, um, after being betrayed by his closest friends and his son Absalom, Interestingly, David evacuates crossing the brook Kidron. He leaves the city of Jerusalem crossing this brook. You know, that's actually kind of interesting too that those that betrayed David, both of them ended up dying by hanging from a tree. Absalom got his hair stuck in a tree and Ahithophel um, hung himself. And no doubt is Jesus his title being the son of David, as he crossed this Kidron Valley, he begins to remember even soon that he too would be rejected by his closest friends. You know, but when we look at this name, Kidron, Kidron, this, the, the meaning of this name actually means dark, shadowy, gloomy. And it's called that because this small brook was the drainage from the temple. So whenever the priests would perform their sacrifices, the blood of the spotless lambs would fall into this valley and even stain this brook with the reddish hue from the sacrifices of the lambs. So imagine this, as Jesus and his disciples crossed this valley, this brook, that stained reddish, no doubt, with the thousands of Passover lambs that are being sacrificed currently in Jerusalem It would remind Jesus of the sacrifice that would occur only the next morning, how he would give his life. And so as we continue in verse 1, it says that as he led his disciples across the brook Hedron, it says that there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. You know, Jesus, we read about it in this all, all throughout this book, but he was known for getting away to a place to rest. And and this garden was one of those places that he often f- um, frequented with his disciples to pray, to get away socially. You know, maybe some of you today, I, w- I would even say to take advantage of this um, social isolation that we have to be in. Take advantage of it. You know, it is a bummer. We miss you guys so much. We wish we could be there with you guys and, and hang out, high five you guys, worship together drink coffee, hang out, but take advantage of this time that you're at home with your family, maybe by yourself, with your friends at your dorm, whatever it is, take advantage of this time to get away and to press into the Lord. See what the Lord has for you. God's not done with you, you know, so Jesus got away in this garden. And, and you know, this reminds me too of, of God's, something of God's story. You know, it reminds me that, you know, the story of God, it began in a garden, in Genesis, right, when he created Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, you know, and, and there, and here too, you know, in our verse, we see that it's going to be redeemed. The story of God is going to be redeemed in a garden as Jesus here is about to getting ready to sacrifice himself. and And it also makes me look forward to one day where one day it'll be finalized in a garden, that the kingdom that God will bring and restore on this earth, if you read the book of Revelation, it's pictured like this garden-like city with a river that flows through it and a tree with leaves that heal the nations. It's really interesting to me. And so this garden actually that we see, read here in chapter 18, this garden is known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was located on the Mount of Olives, you know, which even today, you know, when you go to this mount, it's covered with with olive trees. I actually me and Andrew, we've had like I've said shared before, we've had the opportunity to go to Israel and we've had the opportunity to to visit this mount. And it's amazing. It's beautiful. It really is. There's olive trees everywhere. And actually the, the name Gethsemane means oil press or place of crushing. You know, kind of and, and, and what what this tells us is that this garden once had a press that squeezed oil out of these olives from these olive trees. You know, an interesting thing, really interesting thing, actually, I want to share with you guys um, is that olive oil in ancient Israel was produced in a threefold process. Okay. And some of you might be like, okay, what does this have to What does this have to do, Zach, with the story? Just just bear with me, okay, for this. This is really interesting. So ancient Israel, olive oil was produced in a threefold process. First, the initial crushing. That brought out the purest oil. A huge millstone would squeeze these olives, and the liquid runoff would actually be used, that oil would be used to fuel the flame of the menorah in the temple the candles on the menorah in the temple, and even was used, that oil was used for anointing in the temple. And then secondly, the olive skins, after it was crushed, the olive skins were taken, that were, the olive skins that were left were taken, and a paste from that was gathered onto burlap, and it was crushed a second time. And this oil that was produced from that second crushing would actually become a lubricant that um, the Israelites would use for healing. It would be a balm that was used for healing. And lastly, the leftover pulp after these crushings was gathered together and it was used as soap for cleansing. And what, what strikes me so, what is so cool is just like this oil, as Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane among these olive trees Just like the oil, Jesus' final hours started with an initial crushing in Gethsemane where he acted as our anointed high priest interceding for us, praying for us. And then secondly, he would be crushed in Pilate's porch. He would be scourged and his body would be whipped in a sense, beaten to a pulp. Isaiah would say that from His stripes, by his stripes, we would be healed. And so, secondly, we we, in his suffering were healed. And finally, what was left from Jesus was taken to Golgotha, the Mount of Calvary, the place of the skull, where Jesus would be crucified for our cleansing, where his blood would wash away our dirtiest sins. And even more so, interesting. Is that Jesus would even pray three times in the garden, Father, not your not my will, but yours be done. Really interesting, really interesting about that. And so as we continue we read in our study um, verse two and three, it says, now Judas, who betrayed him, he also knew the place for um, he also knew the place for Jesus often met there in the garden with his disciples and Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. We see Judas, or, or sorry, as Judas was approaching Jesus, we see that Jesus, he made no attempt to hide from his enemies. You know, Judas came instead um, the once disciple of Jesus came and he brought some, somewhat what it's believed to be around 200 Roman troops and temple officers to betray his teacher. But J- Jesus wasn't hiding, wasn't trying to hide. I mean, look at verse four. It says in verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came for forward and said to them, whom do you seek? You know, we see here that Jesus was not caught off by surprise. He wasn't, Caught by surprise. He knew, just as it says there, Knowing Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. He knew all these things that would take place. He was in control through it all. And I want us to remember that throughout the rest of these chapters, these didn't happen to Jesus by accident, but rather he was in control of all of this. You know, Jesus goes and he asks, who are they looking for? He asks, who, who are you seeking? And, and the reason why he asked this question was to defend his disciples was to not drag them into what he would be dragged into. Jesus knew that the issues that the Jewish leaders had were with him, not with his disciples. He was protecting them. And so as we continue to read in verse 5, it says that they answered Jesus, they answered him and they said Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we're looking for. And Jesus said to him, them, I am he. And Judas who betrayed him was standing with him and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You know, as as Jesus answered to them, they're literally floored. They're literally thrown back, fallen to the ground. And here, in a sense, we see the last I am statement of Jesus. Jesus uses that sacred name for God that was given in Exodus and claims it to himself once last time, one, one last time here for his, to prove his deity. And he, and he brings this miracle, really, that pushes his accusers to the floor. And it's this interesting miracle that happens. Only John records this. But it's this interesting miracle that happens here where they fall to the floor. And I really, I think what this shows to us is that, again, Jesus is in control. Jesus was, in a sense, saying, if you're going to take me, know that you're, I, you're taking me because I'm allowing it. I am willing to let this happen. I could say a word and you would be destroyed. You would fall back. But I am allowing, I'm submitting myself. He's, Jesus is being obedient to the will of the Father here. And so we continue on verse seven through 12. It, it goes on and it says, so um, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said once again, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having drawn a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Amazingly, we see here, Jesus seems to care most about the safety of his disciples. You know, but Peter, on the other hand, being so rash as he is, he wants to fight for Jesus. We see Peter here. He's trying to protect Jesus. But Jesus doesn't need protecting. Instead, rather, Jesus is protecting Peter. He's protecting the life of Peter. And so Peter, in his rashness, pulls out his sword and slices off the right ear of a high priest servant named Peter malchus you know and and some uh, um, commentators believe that the reason why john named this servant is because this this um, servant later became a believer and we don't know if that's true or not but john would be writing this book to believers and usually he would mention names to christians to his fellow um, believers so they would know who he was talking about and so here malchus gets his ear cut off i mean it's i mean peter was probably going for the head somehow missed you know maybe malchus was the first to lay his hands on jesus and peter in a rash act you know um tried to defend jesus Um, but what's interesting actually John, john doesn't say it here but in the book of luke it tells us that jesus's last miracle was found here that jesus healed malchus's ear you know, Jesus, what struck me here is that Jesus didn't hate Malchus. He didn't see him as the enemy. Jesus loved this guy. He was even about to die on the cross for his sins. You know, and, and what it struck, what it spoke out to me is that sometimes we can be like Peter. We can be so quick to stand up and, 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 and do something rashly in the name of God in the name of, of, of religion, in the name of Christianity, and, and do it in the harm of others. And forget that instead our master calls us to serve and to love. You know, Jesus didn't come in a sense to crush these men, but he came to love them and to die in their place. Jesus knew that this was his hour. You know, there's this quote by Abraham Lincoln, and, and he says, Abraham Lincoln um, says this, quote, the only way to truly get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend, end quote. You know, isn't that just like Jesus, to love his enemies until they become friends? You know, and still today, Jesus is wanting to take those who hate him, who reject him, who curse him, and turn them into friends of God to restore that relationship. And I think for us as believers, That should be our objective too, restoration. Not harming others, but seeking to restore people back in relationship with God, back in friendship with God. And so all of Jesus' life had been leading up to this one moment. We read in verse 12, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. And so Jesus is arrested and led away in chains bound. Verse 13 goes on and it says, so they led him to Annas for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who actually advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so Jesus is led here to the house of Annas and and actually an ex-high priest who was stripped of his priesthood by the Roman government when they took over. And he's the first one to interrogate Jesus. And verse 15 continues. And we see, we read here in verse 15, just so Simon, Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter, he stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And so we see here, Peter, no doubt, trying to make up for his wrongdoing, knowing that he had done wrong, trying to make up for that. Um, Peter follows from a distance to see what will become of his beloved master. And we don't know exactly for sure. You know, here it says that he was with another disciple. We don't know exactly who this other disciple was. Most people believe it to be John, um, the writer of this book, because John in, in his gospel, whenever he writes about himself, he often refers to himself in the third person. Um, but we see that these two disciples would follow closely and would watch the trial of their master, Jesus, and it would actually turn out to be a really heartbreaking experience for them. But now we see Peter is gonna be tested on his loyalty to Jesus. He's gonna get a chance for redemption and he's gonna be tested. He's gonna be tested by a little girl. And let's see what happens. In verse 17, it says that the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are not also one of these man's disciples, are you? And he said to her, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves by it. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And so here, Peter denies to be also one of this man's disciples. No doubt this girl understood that John, or whoever this other disciple was, was a follower of God was a follower of Jesus. And so she questions Peter, aren't you also one of the disciples? And quickly, you can almost, I almost picture it as Peter's walking in, he just quickly responds and says, I'm not, and continues walking inside, seeking to blend in with the crowd and warms himself by the coals, um, the fire there of coals with the others. It's a strike one for Peter here. But as we continue on, we see that the scene is gonna shift back to Jesus's trial. In verse 19, read with me, verse 19 through 21, it says that the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues in the temple where all Jews come together and I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I said In a sense, Jesus was saying here, ask those who heard me openly. When they asked this question to Jesus about his teaching, Jesus was saying, hey, my ministry, his ministry wasn't a hidden ministry. It was one that he he did this ministry openly and publicly. Yet we see a contrast here that the Jewish leaders were trying to try him and condemn him secretly and at night. You know, and and I think that speaks something to all of us is that truth has nothing to hide. You know, Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, truth has nothing to hide. You never need to hide the truth. And Jesus laid out his teaching of truth for all to hear and to scrutinize. In verse 22, it says that when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him and said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus is struck in the face. Now began the physical abuse of Jesus that would end in his crucifixion. Jesus here, he asks for a fair trial. Where are his witnesses? Where is his case pleaded? Where are both sides of the case laid out fairly? Annas avoids the, co- the question by Jesus and instead passes the responsibility on to Caiaphas, the high priest. And in verse 25, we we see that the scene shifts back to Peter who no doubt he probably saw the hard slap unexpectedly put upon Jesus. The shock of that sight probably increased the level of stress and panic for Peter as he stood by the fire, warming himself. Let's join in with Peter right here in verse 25. and Let's find out what happens. It says in verse 25 that now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, aren't you? And he denied it. He said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So as the crowd gathered around, they asked Peter, Aren't you also one of his disciples? Peter being there, probably knowing knowing that John was present And known as a disciple of Jesus, but fear gave way to Peter's heart and he denied it. He denied it, said, I'm not, strike two, Pete. And not only that, but apparently Malchus had a cousin who might want revenge and calls out Peter. And this relative of Malchus has said, didn't I see you in the garden with Jesus? And the panic begins to rise up in Peter and he almost in a sense, Quickly responds and denies a third time, strike three. And at once, the rooster crows. You know, there's a story of a man named Kermit Tyler. And this man was an Air Force pilot. He was stationed at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. You know, Tyler was manning the radar the morning of December 7th, 1941. And an arrival of a group of B-17 bombers from the mainland America, they were scheduled to come that morning. And so when Tyler saw the large blip on the radar screen, he said to his coworker, don't worry about it, thinking it was those, um, that group of um, planes from, Amer- from the mainland America. You know, Tyler was new to his job, and he was expecting those planes from San Diego. But the radar blip turned out to be the first wave of Japanese fighters and bombers. You know, his quote, do not, don't worry about it. That, that goes down in infam, infamy as, as one of the most monumental mistakes of all time. I mean, I can't even imagine having to deal with that mistake, knowing that. But you know what? Here in our text, I think this there's only one failure I can think of that would be worse than what this guy experienced, and that's here with Peter. Peter denying his loving Lord, his teacher, the very God in flesh. You know, the book of Luke kind of goes a little bit more into detail during this situation. It tells us that after the rooster crowed, that it almost hit Peter, what Jesus had said, how Jesus told Peter he would deny him. And it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. You know, Peter, he proved to be a coward. He would feel the weight of this mistake even after Jesus died. He would carry that with him. But what's so beautiful, we can't forget that our risen Lord would have mercy on Peter and Peter would even show repentance that would lead Jesus to recommission him and restore him back as a disciple. And so as the rooster crowed here, It shows us that morning had come and we move to our final scene at Pilate's porch in verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter to the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You know, here the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate only because it was necessary. Rome was had taken over the nation during this time. And they actually had stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. Which the Jews normally would um, commit capital punishment with uh, stoning. You would die by stoning. But because Rome was in charge, this meant that leading Jesus to Pilate would, in their hopes, end in crucifixion. And so... In verse 29, it says that when Pilate went out to them, no doubt Pilate had no idea what he was about to encounter, what mourning this was about to be in the history of humanity. So Pilate went out and he said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him and they said, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, well, that's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. You know, the Jewish leaders, they knew what they wanted. They wanted the death penalty for Jesus. They had already settled it in their hearts to kill Jesus. You know, Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount that murder begins in the heart with hatred. Hatred is the seed of murder. Murder. He said, if you hated your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. And these Jewish leaders had already crucified Jesus in their hearts. Yet notice Jesus' words were fulfilled in verse 32. We saw that. Jesus knew what kind of death he was going to die. I mean, this was prophesied of, the crucifixion was prophesied of all the way back in the Old Testament in Psalm 22. I would encourage you, go and read that. In that psalm, it says that the Messiah would be pierced and that not one of his bones would be broken. You know, the Jews here, they thought that they were calling the shots, that that Jesus' destiny was in their hands, but in reality, Jesus was in control. Jesus was in control of this situation. And so verse 33, Pilate brings Jesus to himself, verse 33 reads, It says, Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You know, Pilate questions Jesus and Jesus gets this opportunity to converse with Pilate. Yet one thing to notice about Pilate is that he's a politician, a secular Roman, and he doesn't want to think about spiritual issues. And we see that in his responses. Verse 36, Jesus answered Pilate and he says, my kingdom isn't of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus here claimed to be a king, right? You read that. Right there in verse 37, he says, "This was the purpose I was born. Jesus was born in a manger, wrapped himself in human flesh, came humbly. for this purpose is the reason why He came into this world. We're, we're seeing it unfold in this chapter. We're seeing it, we're, uh, we're, we're seeing the main reason why Jesus came. Why this king came. But Jesus' kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. And he's trying to let Pilate know that. You know, Jesus conquers by serving. Jesus seizes by sacrificing. His kingdom is based on mercy, not muscle or force. It's it's based on forgiveness rather than resistance. It's a kingdom that's based on truth. Oh, but Pilate, he criticizes one of the most famous quotes from him here. He says, What is truth? You know, he asked this question, and yet the irony of this, even though he gives no time for Jesus to respond to this question, the irony is, is he asks asks this question to the one person who is the answer. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate was standing in front of truth. So it goes on to say in verse 38, the rest of verse 38, and, and he had said this, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you over at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist. And so even after Pilate found no guilt in Jesus, Jesus being the perfect spotless lamb, no fault found in him, the perfect sacrifice for us, yet because of Pilate's fear of the Jews, he refused to release Jesus. You know, Pilate encountered truth, yet he lacked the courage to obey it. You know, and and I think that's so true with people Today, um, and even ourselves, sometimes we can encounter the truth of God and we don't want to obey it. We choose to run away from it. We choose to come up with some other thing, some other um, chase after some other goal or, or ig- ignore the voice of God in our hearts speaking. I would encourage you today, today if you're listening, um, obey God. Listen to what God is speaking to you. That What is God saying to you? What is God calling you to do? Have you done it? Have you obeyed him? And so Pilate here, he looks for a loophole. He looks for a loophole out of this and he refers to a custom that they had where they would release, around Passover, they would release a prisoner, one of the Jewish prisoners. And so Pilate, in a sense, gives that option. He says, we could release Barabbas, a robber, a murderer, or release Jesus, one who healed the sick, who delivered the oppressed. And the Israelites, the Jewish leaders, were so blinded with hate that they insisted on having a criminal set free so that Jesus could be killed on a cross. You know, this right here, so sad, this reflects the true fallen nature of humanity. That we would reject God and rather choose another You know, most scholars believe that it was most likely Barabbas' cross that Jesus would die on. Barabbas was most likely scheduled to be executed that day. But because they chose to set him free, Jesus took Barabbas' place on that cross. You know, and I want to drive it home even closer to us friends together that were listening together. It was our cross that Jesus died on. It was our sins that deserved that punishment of the cross. Yet Jesus willingly took it for us. We were set free while Jesus was nailed to a cross. You know, um, a great cross-reference verse for this in Colossians 3.13. Colossians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We deserved the curse. We deserved the punishment of our sin. But Jesus took it for us. He became a curse that we might have life. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so I want to leave you today with this. When was the last time you preached the gospel to yourself? When was the last time you saw your need for God's grace every day? You know, this story is a story that should really move us, should change us. We should be those that are reminding ourselves of what Jesus did every day and why we need needed salvation. You know, Jesus loves you so much. He wanted to set you free. He never saw you as the enemy, but rather saw you as the prize and was willing to go the greatest distance to win you over. So let's surrender to God. Let's give our hearts to the one who rightfully deserves it the one who paid our price for us. Let's close in prayer today. Lord, thank you so much for your love, God. Thank you that you endured all of this for us. The agony in the garden, being crushed, being unfairly treated in the trial, denied by your closest friends, and chosen over a criminal to be killed and to be hanged on a tree. Thank you for the cross and what it means for us, how it means freedom. I pray, God, that you'd give us hope, Lord, especially during these times that we're living in. Help us to find our hope in the cross. There's power in your blood, Jesus. And I just want to pray for everyone that's listening. God, maybe they're feeling fear or worry with the things that are going on. Lord, help us to remember that you took care of our greatest need, which was sin. And that means that you're going to take care of every need that we could have under that. So we commit ourselves to you, all of our worries, all of our cares. We want to roll them over on you, cast our cares on you, Jesus, because you care for us. We love you, God. We pray it in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. We miss you guys so much. Can't wait to see you guys again. Uh, but be on the lookout on our Instagram. Share this with people maybe who go to refuge um, that aren't able to or, or maybe might not know about it. And um, yeah, we I know on behalf of Andrew, we really miss you guys. Uh, can't wait to see you guys. We're praying for you. If you need anything, feel free to call the church, message our Instagram. Um, We would love to pray with you, lift up any prayer requests, or meet any of your needs. We love you guys, and yeah, God bless you.